0: My friends, welcome back. Today we have on Mark Pollard, he's a strategist, author, podcaster and Aussie. Today we can expect to learn why some planners are too much like Gollum, how to be a better strategist and towards the end Mark actually takes us through a sort of live example of how to strategize better and how to find common threads to your strategy um, it's really sick so stay, stay around for that or if you can't be to listen to all of it jump ahead to the end and you can enjoy that. He even said my accent made him go intellectual, so that was a nice of him. Anyway, please enjoy the brilliant teachings of Mark Pollard. Yeah, so I always like to start these things at the start. So if we go back to the start briefly, um, tell me about your, your journey into advertising, how you got to where you are
1: yeah i mean i've been in agencies since i was 19. i was making websites at the time i was at university i was studying a double degree called commerce and law as in business and law and in australia you can potentially start studying law at a unnecessarily young age if you get the (laughs) opportunity to do so so i was uh i don't know if i had a shaved head but i was really into underground rap somehow got the marks to get into law and was studying it at 17 and didn't like it and uh Was making websites, putting on music events, I was rapping at the time, and ended up in a digital agency that needed help doing interviews with artists for a Levi's website uh so that's how i how i started and then through my 20s was doing user experience and information architecture spent a little bit of time in .com, spent time in advertising agencies in their digital groups sometimes part-time because i was also making a music magazine and then when i was about 28 moved into an account planning or brand planner role at leo Burnett in sydney and ever since i've been trying to merge all of those worlds together the worlds of account planning or strategy Plus uh, content. I know it's a weird word to use sometimes. Plus you know, hmm. user yeah. user user experience thinking. So that's the short story. Nice. It's uh, varied and uh, very different.
0: Um. So why strategy? What what led you into what what is a bit strategy that
1: you you like? Yeah. So the first decade or so of the career, I was really into the internet. It was just so immediate. You'd make things and you'd see people interacting with them, at least through your analytics programs, which were all very simple back then. And I didn't like advertising. I wasn't interested in it. I just thought it was a waste of time. And in a lot of the agencies I was in, the people who did the advertising seemed really arrogant and aloof. And I didn't really like it. I was like, what is this? You know, we're making websites reaching thousands of people, or I'm publishing a little magazine and I reach hundreds of people. Like, that's real to me. All this advertising stuff, does the world really yeah. need it? And then. <laughs> And also at that time there weren't that many strategy roles or account planning roles. There weren't many digital strategists back then. Hardly any, I think. Uh, And account planners, there was a good little crew of them in Sydney. And it'd probably be a different story if I'd grown up in a different city. But there's like a good good small crew of of account planners there now and, and a smaller crew back then. And I ended up uh, freelancing as a producer, a digital producer at Leo Burnett. Had a kid on the way and was like, you know what, I'm sick of burning out. I love doing the strategy work. And apparently there's a thing as a full-time strategist. So I'm not going to take any jobs until I get a job as a, as a strategist as a, or an account planner. And, you know, had an offer from them in another agency and then decided to go full-time. So that's how it happened. But I wasn't 28 until I was essentially a full-time account planner or brand planner and even then at Leban at Sydney about 50% of my work was still digital doing user experience and information architecture for Kimberly Clark brands uh, Rabobank, a big bank website so that's how it happened and when it happened
0: nice it's, yeah it's quite a late um, career move then um, into something that you're clearly you know
1: all about now um, what is strategy how do we define it yeah for me strategy is an informed opinion about how to win you need information you need to do research you need to look at competition what's happening in the world what's worked for you and then you form an opinion you create an argument for what you think it could be and that argument forces you to make decisions about where to spend your time and money and ultimately you're doing it to win now win can be a bit of a controversial word for some people Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean it doesn't mean that you have to see the world as a zero-sum game where some people are winners and some people are losers so i want to give it context like that the other the other thing that i think is important is like nobody owns the word strategy and in the business world you know if you've done an mba you think you're the strategist and like why are there all these Mm -hmm. other people talking about strategy i'm the strategist i'm the master (laughs) strategist they're nothing they're just tacticians nonsense (laughs) you know you can use you can use these strategy techniques in, in many different ways, in secular ways, you can use them on yourself. If your goal is to win at not thinking that you're an imposter or at not thinking that you're a lone wolf or at not thinking that you're confused all the time, you can apply strategy techniques on, on your self-talk. But yeah, strategy is an informed opinion about how to win is, is where I come in on that.
0: I like it. It's quite. Um, it's a very, you know, works on different levels and in different, um, you know, Not just in advertising. I like how you um, apply the same, you know, the same show how the same principles work across, you know, your personal life um, and everything else. I think that's quite a a nice broad and clear definition. Um, What would you say strategy's role in advertising is then? So what, you know, what's the difference? What's the difference it can make? What's good versus bad strategy?
1: How do we? Yeah. Yeah. So to talk about strategy and advertising, you have to talk about account planning. Account planning is a 50-year-old discipline, over 50 years old. It was established in London. And the way that I understand it is that it was brought into advertising agencies to help them make more effective work by reflecting more truth about people. So there are many ways that people describe what account planning is and the role of it. You know, some people say it's it's about representing the quote-unquote consumer or it's about mm. common common sense through the creative process, all that kind of stuff. But yeah. strategy in advertising came through the account planner. And the reason that people chose that language, account planner, which to me was very British and aloof and weird in Australia when I got that title. I was like, what is this, you know? But you talk to anyone in London and they're like, why are we saying the word strategist? We hate that word, America. Yeah, um, and, and so, yeah, that's really what it's about. But then the question like what is strategy in advertising well we start with it's an informed opinion about how to win which means that at least my personal point of view is you probably need to know what your goal is and what's in the way of your goal so the way i practice strategy is very problem oriented what's the problem that we need to solve and there are different categories of problem but that's where it starts right
0: yeah okay and so How do you relate the strategy, you know, to create a brief when you're thinking about the strategy for an upcoming campaign? Say, are you always thinking in terms of, okay, we want, you know, this is the problem and this is how we'll reflect on the brief, or do you think more broadly about the strategy and then the brief comes, you know, as a, as a product of it rather than always being the brief as the focus?
1: Yeah, the the creative brief, it's not that it's incidental, in. history sometimes the creative brief has been super important and for people who are full-time strategists or account planners the creative brief is a moment of heroism for them where they're like yeah i get to shine i get to put my name yeah. on here i'm just gonna quietly open up this template and put my name first as the author oh, next next i'll put the next i'll put the date and, and i've arrived but but the the problem with that is that if you behave like Gollum, and it's all about my, my precious my precious creative brief that you miss so much stuff. Like Mm -hmm. you, you need to be doing research. You need to be talking to people. You need to be thinking. And then you use a template like a creative brief or a strategy framework to push your thinking around, but ultimately to frame the thinking that you've done after talking to people. You know, the creative brief is almost, it's almost incidental. It's important. But to only focus on that, to only... Focus on your moment of heroism means that you might take shortcuts to feel like a hero rather than potentially doing research, asking interesting questions, trying to come up with five to 10 different problem statements or potentially five to 10 problems to solve one problem that you think needs solving. And also talking to other people, maybe to the point where they say words that go on the brief instead of your words. So Creative briefs are important, but you know, got to be careful with them too.
0: Yeah, so you see more as a process of just finding out information that's gonna, you know, that's gonna gonna help, whether it be a quote or a fact or an insight or whatever. And then, yeah, it's almost like downloading all the information you can, getting everything you can, and then the creative brief is almost like the edited, filtered out product at
1: the byproduct at the end. Potentially, yeah, I'd be careful with uh, everything you can. I think if you're gonna do research, you might need to do it in in stages, where the first stage is like an hour discussion or an hour of research working out what you think you need to do research about, right? So that you're then developing questions that you're trying to answer through that research that you might answer or that you might interview other people about. So that I think okay, that, yeah. that, that, that comes first, right? Yeah. So it's but, more, yeah tar-
0: sorry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Download everything you can that's of relevance and that you have targeted
1: that you want to know or want to find out. Yeah. Which means you need to understand what the business issue is. You need to understand the audience that you're selling to or the audience that you're trying to change the behavior of. You need to understand what your budget is. You need to understand what problems are standing in the way of the goal that you've got and of the change that you're trying to inspire. And then, 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 then then you play with that. Uh, And that's also to separate the creative brief from being like a a form that might be on a clipboard that you're just walking around, maybe with a client or with a team, and you're like, okay, I'm just gonna fill this in. I got a pen. Who who like who like to help me fill this in? You know, forms aren't things that we just fill in, or creative briefs. We shouldn't create create. We shouldn't treat creative briefs like forms to fill in you know like we're just applying for a driver's license you got to do the thinking and have the discussions and allow the messiness to be before the clarity comes out so yeah. that's also important
0: yeah i think that's a, an important way of reframing it um yeah i like the idea of not thinking it as a as a form to be filled out and like boxes to be checked and a checklist to go through and instead you know being something that yeah as you say you get creative on you get messy with um yeah so on like good versus bad advertising, what are the what would you say like the most common mistakes or problems that people have with their strategy? You know, maybe they they bring you in last minute because they're struggling with the strategy. Or yeah, what are the sort of common traits or
1: common problems that people or brands, businesses, agencies struggle with their strategy? Too many numbers. I get brought in a lot when companies are dealing with a lot of agencies that are peddling data and numbers and statistics, but. They're not making any sense out of them. That's a pretty common situation that I walk into. And sometimes I'll just write a page or two pages mm-hmm. and uh, just to make sense of all the work that tens of people have done and tens of people have charged money for. So that that's one. And then boringness. Don't advertise if you're not going to take risks. Don't advertise if you're not going to think in your head that you're competing with a stand-up comedian or something on Netflix, because you are. And if you're not going to compete with them, don't do it. Or just know that you're going to have to spend more money to get your ads seen because nobody wants to deal with them. They don't. Not, no one's paying attention to them. So I think numbers and boringness are the two most devilish traps that keep people from doing anything that's going to work for them. What do you think? Um, what kind of thinking, or what you know? What?
0: How do? Why does that? Why are they such common traps? What sort of thinking leads people to keep getting caught up in this? Is it like an over-reliance on, you know, big data's the the future, it's gonna tell us
1: what to do? Yeah, because people are scared of creativity and the messiness of it, and they're scared of creative people. It's easier to point at numbers and to say, hey, that thing that's never existed in the world, is there an idea that can prove that's gonna work? And that makes you sound smart, it makes you sound professional. But that's not really how it works and I'm being a bit dramatic I mean you can use obviously use numbers numbers are important and useful and there's amazing yeah. research out there but people just use it in a way to be robotic to be mindless and to keep themselves safe so that's really what's going on
0: yeah Rory Sutherland's got a bit um, in his book Alchemy where he talks about the issue of um, where com- when companies have sort of hierarchical structures like that you know if, if you've got a boss you've got to turn around to and sell the latest creative work and you know, for example, like when Dairy Milk had the gorilla advert, how do you turn around to your boss and be like, I've just signed off on this gorilla advert. All he does is play the drums to Phil Collins and he goes, what's the, you know, what's the thinking there? What's the, what's the numbers there? What's the logic? You know, there is none. And yeah, it was one of the best adverts of all time. So it's, it's, yeah, he says like the issue with these sorts of things is how do you, how does the person you're selling it to
1: sell it to the person above them? And this is where creative creativity sort of dies. Yeah, but you're also, from what I understand, talking about not just cultural differences, but psychological differences uh, that I believe are true if I believe other psychologists, or if I believe psychologists, not that I'm one, so I don't know why I said other, but you know, <laughs> you, if you look at the big five personality traits, there's so much research on creativity that people who are very creative tend to be high in the O, O-C-E-A-N, ocean of the big five personality traits. So they're open to experiences, to novelty, And to variety. And all of these things have a shadow side because that can set up a lot of creative people to be, you know, exposed to addictive behaviors, let's put it that way. Uh, Most creative people who are successful, they need to be relatively conscientious. That's the C. They need to be conscientious or they don't get anything done. I recently read a piece of research that suggested that a lot of creative people are actually a bit more extroverted than I thought. Uh, You know, they're looking for correlations between creativity and personality traits and then some people also look into uh, correlations between personality traits creativity and the word intelligence which is problematic in in some respects based on some of the research that's been done that's been led to poor outcomes for massive parts of the population uh Mm. but yeah apparently a little bit more extroverted than i would have thought then you get a agreeable agreeableness you know i think if you're going to make ideas you need to be a bit a bit disagreeable and that's why a lot of creative departments have people who don't want to hear anything from anybody else because they know that <laughs> no one's making this idea if they don't push it through and then and neuroticism bouncy bouncy brains a lot of creative people are a bit bouncy in the brain so what you're talking about there the culture clash is, is a clash of psychology in that you've got businesses that have been around for a while who naturally have more what i would call conservatively or psychologically conservative people in them yeah definitely who who are low in openness, who are high in conscientiousness, who are logic oriented and logic hardened. Now, why are they signing off ideas? You know, that's the other question behind all of this. Yeah, yeah. I
0: mean, that's that's the bigger question.
1: Yeah. So there's a, there's a lot going on there, but I, I, I tend to see it through the, the big five personality traits right now based on the research I've read recently.
0: Yeah, that's, that's quite interesting. Um, spin of it is, you know, how do you break through then if you have a situation where you have clients who are. You know, one way inclined, more logical, more straightforward numbers. Show me the proof. And you have creative teams or creative agencies who are more, you know, naturally creative and a bit more out there, open. How do you break down that barrier to find a middle ground? Or you know, is there a way to, or do you just always end up having you know the client wins because they're the client and nothing creative ever gets done? In those situations, of
1: course. Yeah, first and foremost, it's about match to begin with. And what, you know, I've interviewed a lot of people who run agencies and I know people who run agencies and the most prolific creative advertising agencies, you're not gonna go to them and ask them to work on your business if you don't want them to scare you because you look at their website, you look at their portfolio, you look at the work that they've done, that's what they do. Mm-hmm. So that's, yeah. the case, that's the use case of that agency, it starts there. And if you don't start there, very difficult to reinvent yourself, very difficult to get out of that box. So that's where it starts. Then if you look at campaigns, I'll I'll put the Old Spice Guy campaign, the first one in here, and I think I'll put the Like a Girl campaign from memory, but some of these things are just done on the side. There's a restless, probably mid-level client, you know, 20s, 30s. They're just restless. They want to do some work. They've somehow carved off a bit of budget, and they find an agency, or they they find a team in the agency, and they're just like, look, let's just do something and see what happens. And then if it's successful, everybody jumps on it. But... Mm if you want to do super creative work and you're working with a company that is really low in empathy, intuition, introspection, creativity, openness, I'm not sure it's really going to work unless there's a crisis and they're like, you know what, screw it, go for it. But, but the thing is a lot of us have wasted years trying to believe that we could change conservative people and conservative companies. Yeah. And without a without a crisis, I just don't I don't see it happening, you know. And that's not because I spent seven years in New York trying to do it without <laughs> without without success. It's just yeah. I, psychologically, I just I don't see it. And, the, and then you talk to the people who are really prolific at doing it; they don't deal with that problem that much because yeah, they've attracted what more, not all, but more of what they want into their lives.
0: Yeah, so it's yeah. I guess the the importance is always on there the match and if you get a client that's going to be difficult or it's going to be, you know, close-minded, then I guess there's not a lot not that you can do, which is, you know, it's a bit of a shame, but it's just how the business goes sometimes, I guess.
1: Well, yeah, it's not even that it's a shame. It's just being honest with this stuff in the moment because, some, like I said, some mm-hmm. of us waste, waste years. We move around the world if we're fortunate enough to. We also, we're working 80 hours a week, and it's like, that's eh, probably not going to happen, not going to affect anything, and that's not giving in. That's not giving in. You still got to push. Still got to push. I don't believe there's such a thing as a boring brief. I don't think there's such a thing as a boring problem. Uh, there are boring people and boring companies, but uh, what I'm saying is the implication of it is not to give in and to stop, it's to proportion or allocate your personal energy and time accordingly. And, and to potentially question people who try to sell you either full time jobs or freelance or yeah, freelance jobs where they're like, "Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna change this place." Probably not. Probably not. But that's not being defeatist.
0: Yeah. Okay. Um, changing gear slightly. Um, what are your must-haves in a creative brief? What do you always make sure exists? Obviously, not. There's not going to be one thing across everything, but you know, what sort of themes or yeah, what's a sort of must-have, if you will,
1: in a creative brief for you? Yeah. The the minimum is that I, I want to know what problem that we need to solve. Uh, for me, that the way I use that word is to really understand the barrier or the obstacle in the audience's mind. And that means you need to define who the audience is. But I want to know the problem that we're trying to solve. I want some kind of insight, some sort of unspoken human truth. And I want that to be connected to the problem. Uh, and then I want to know budget. I want to know what the brand assets are that need to be pretty consistent in whatever the advertising is, assuming there's an advertising solution uh i'm happy to see metrics <laughs> i think you, need that. you gotta you gotta think about that especially if there's a way to measure what you're doing in an in an interesting way yeah uh, and you know there are probably like 10 to 15 things on most creative briefs but i want those things that i just mentioned before anything else and i've not mentioned things like strategy statements or single minded propositions so i'd want at least one of those which shows a clear way to solve the problem through audience understanding and through understanding what's happening with the competition and what's interesting about the company. But what I just said, I I would expect it to be expressed in a handful of sentences, all of that.
0: Yeah. What would you, um, what's the most interesting metrics that you've seen um, people use for campaigns?
1: Uh, I mean, if you can get to behavioral metrics, Just look. it depends on the campaign because I I also feel that it's easy to over engineer this stuff based on some of the marketing sciences research that's now better known than it used to be. Some of which is recent and some of it's not. But if you're working on a mass brand, then your job is to reach a lot of people constantly, probably constantly or very often so that you're in their minds. You need to be associated with something in their minds though and that could be a word or two or a sentence so that when they have a particular problem in their lives, they're like, oh, who's the company that does that? There we go, that's what it is. Mm. Yeah. Uh, and then you know, you, you need your brand assets to be brought to life pretty consistently as well. And, and so in some respects, I feel like advertising is simple or simpler than it used to be or that it has been in the past 10 to 20 years, right? There's something liberating and underwhelming and scary about some of the stuff or the implications that are coming out of the marketing sciences world so if that's true that you need your brand to be in front of a big audience quite often and assume that loyalty might be useful but it's you're not focusing on loyal customers that you're really focusing on the people who are gonna buy from you every now and then what are you gonna measure <laughs> you know it probably is gonna feel like some of the vanity metrics of, of reach and frequency. Yeah, I was gonna say is, is right? reach still a valid metric is
0: yep is being in front of people is that is that simply enough
1: yeah, I think so. You're probably going to pair it with some yeah. kind of brand tracking and, you know, I'm not a I'm not a measurement expert, but in some mm-hmm. ways, some of the vanity metrics are probably okay. Uh, you know, back in the day, and I've seen this discussed recently, but back, like I'm talking 12 years ago, we used to try to connect some campaign work to uh, online search behavior. And I know there's more of that being talked about, especially in the UK right now. But we were playing with that stuff 12, 13 years ago, more, four, maybe more, 14 years ago. Um and so that's useful the challenge with a lot of that data is it's not as available as it used as it used to be uh, mm. but yeah I, I tried to answer the question not sure
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it's just, it's just um yeah i don't know I when campaigns especially like digital campaigns always sort of flex as you said as you call them the vanity metrics of reach engagement um earned you know earned value of media or whatever um, you wonder how much value is actually in that. I do. Um, yeah. Do you think there is there? I mean, obviously, yeah. You said there's there is still value. Um, in just simply, you know, refreshing the brand in someone's mind. But it's almost, yeah. How do you track what people are thinking about you? Because it's very good to say, oh, you know, ten million people saw our advert. Okay, but how many people remembered it? How many people made a new connection in their mind to the brand? Is there any way to measure that, or is it yeah, is there any way to measure that?
1: I don't know, I'm sure there's some kind of complex piece of technology out there that one of the research companies is, is selling, um, potentially connected to ongoing like panel, panel research, so having a bunch of people that you speak to or ask questions of every so often. I'm sure there are ways where people are trying to answer that question and they're, they're trying to answer it in a very legitimate way, but also in a, like a proxy way, like what's closest to this. Mm-hmm uh but yeah like digital and social agencies i see a lot of case studies and um they're like yeah this reached 10 million people or then they go this and then the whole internet paid attention and you're like (laughs) you're like doubt it doubt it yeah i didn't see it so there's minus one totally totally this is very true and and also well compared to what like what's the context here you know compared Mm. is is that number 10 million good compared to the other campaigns you've done that's, that would be useful to know and valid. Is it good compared to other campaigns that month on those platforms? That would be useful to know. How does it compare to your competition? And for most like established brands, you need, from what I understand, to have a share of voice that's bigger than your market share to grow. So you need to potentially work out that stuff as well.
0: Yeah, do you think, though, there's going to be – it seems like there's a bit of a battle, there certainly was a bit of a battle for a while between – traditional advertising and online advertising when you've got such clear metrics with like return on ad spend and reach click through rate and so on and so on um, with online advertising. But then obviously there's been controversies recently with like Facebook misreporting numbers and um, a few other agencies having to give money back because they lied about people that had seen it and clicked through and they were overcharging and all this sort of um, almost fraud going on with online advertising do you think there's going to be a shift back towards tradition where people trust traditional advertising even though it's less trackable and it's less like um tangible the results do you think people will did they? well first of all did they move away from traditional advertising towards this metric based and will they move back
1: yeah i I don't know i think you'd, you'd actually need research to argue for or against all of these things because otherwise we'll just be making it up but I, I do know that there's a pretty strong argument from people who are more in the broadcast space but then what does the word broadcast mean anymore what's the word digital mean anymore what's the word internet mean anymore why are we measuring things with you know wh- why is television and radio sorry why are television and radio getting measured against digital like what mm. that's crazy what's not digital mm-hmm. at some point so uh, you know if anything i i think Hopefully the correction that comes out of the past few years of all of these stories and these anecdotes and the fraud mixed with the marketing sciences is that people are like, you know what we have to do? we got to create really good stuff, stuff that's going to make this brand famous and we're going to have to spend more money than our competitors if we really want to grow and we're going to have to take creative risks because there's research that suggests that's also part of getting famous uh and we need to reach a broad audience so let's just go back to the fundamental there's probably like seven to ten key principles that are fundamental let's do that knowing that a chunk of the money that we spend wherever it's spent we're just not going to be able to account for but also knowing that trying to account for everything might make us make bad decisions
0: yeah i think that's yeah very well put um so going back into more strategy-focused um, chatter, uh, how can agencies
1: better understand their target markets and consumers? Well, by talking to them and by seeing what they do online and offline, it's that's uh, not a difficult question to answer. But why the question?
0: It feels like... Well, I read recently um, Can't Sell, Won't Sell by um, Steve Harrison. not sure if you've read it. Um, But in there, he says that there seems to be a bit of a gap between work that agencies are producing and the reality that a lot of people are living. And he argues the fact that um, a lot of brands have lost touch, I guess, in a way, Um, with sort of the common man and they're a bit too insular in their big city bubbles um, and they almost talk to themselves, you know, advertising for advertisers um, and all these sorts of problems. Is that something
1: you think exists? Do you disagree with um, Steve's take on that? I mean, it probably exists, but again, I think without numbers, who who knows, you know, every time I'm over in London or in England, people talk about the bubble and it's like, oh, come on, we're talking about the bubble again. Okay. But like there are people in bubbles who can make exceptional art and who make low or let's call it lowbrow and highbrow art, and they make all kinds of stuff that are relevant to all kinds of people. So the only way to prove that point or to argue against it is to say, hey, there are a hundred brands that are big in the UK. They're all they all their agencies are in London, and guess what? None of their campaigns are working. And if that's true, then I think that argument is is worth investigating. Otherwise, it's really just some like a classist uh, argument without proof, it doesn't doesn't matter. Like, what's the point of that argument, you know?
0: Yeah, that's that's fair enough. Um, Okay, if we move on to strategy tips for for students then, like, as students, when we're creating campaigns or award entries, whatever it is, we basically have to do every role of the agency in one. So, certainly, um, the way we're taught, it's not, you know, we're not taught to be strategists because we're not, you know, that's not what we're there for. So, how can we improve our... You know, what are some simple ways we can improve our strategy and write better briefs for ourselves
1: and you know, incorporate strategy better into our work? Yeah, focus on the problem. That's where you want to start. That's where you need to start. It's not going to work for every agency you work in or every client that you work with, but really spend time on the problem. I think that's where it has to start. I see a lot of student portfolios and you know, I'm usually looking for some kind of theme or thread that goes from, the audience, the problem statement, the insight at the very least, to what's unique and motivating about the company, strategy statement, and then the campaign idea. At the very least that. And if you want bonus points, then let me see how that all connects to your channel selection. Because the theory there is that if your ideas come to life in channels where they interact with the channels in a meaningful way, that the communication is potentially going to be more effective. Mm. All that that means is like, if you're dealing with anger or selling anger, where could you turn up where people are angry or not angry enough? And if you do that in a way where you're interacting with the channel, you know, there's potential for you to be uh, more remembered. So, but to me, it just starts with really focusing on the problem most portfolios i see don't have that kind of thread the language is big people try to be really grandiose strategists or like business school strategists as opposed to write it like you might write a rap song or write it like you're writing a song or a poem short sharp words and keep the theme alive throughout that so that that to me is what i look for that thread and the only other thing around that because that's everything i shouldn't say the only other thing but you know, if you're going to say yourself as a strategist, have you spoken to anyone? What research did you do? What questions did you ask? What was one interesting thing you found? Tell me that at least, and then show me the cool campaign idea you came up with.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's probably not. It's probably something I'm guilty of myself, where um, I maybe jump to the creative like solution and idea first, whereas the way you laid it out there was very much like every steps thought through is that the sort of thinking that people want to see where it's like it's not just random you can see okay they did this and then they thought about why this was the problem and then they thought about why this solution works with this audience is that the sort of almost methodical
1: um as you called it the thread through the work yeah but it's it's messy in the happening and yeah okay (laughs) you know it's not like it's not what edward de bono who I guess, made lateral thinking and linear thinking pretty popular ideas. He refers to the opposite of that as deductive thinking, where A leads to B, leads to C, leads to D. That's not what I'm suggesting. You know, I bounce around. I'll use a bunch of the words that I used before. And as I'm doing my research, I'm starting to think about different patterns of words that I'm hearing. And then I'll try to write a problem statement, and think about why that problem exists, because I'm trying to get to the root cause of the problem so that the problem doesn't keep happening. I'm just, you know, Mm -hmm. I don't want to just solve a symptom, but I might use that sentence for the problem statement and get to an insight that connects quite well. And then think, you know what, the way I've written the insight, I think that's actually the problem. And so I move the words around. So it's messy until it's, it's messy until it isn't, but you need to take some kind of authorial responsibility for how you explain your stories or the work you've done, even if it's just five sentences, you know, brief came to us like this. I spoke to 10 people, guess what I found? The reason they're not buying this thing or doing this thing is because of x short sharp language for x and that led to this strategy and this strategy led to this idea you know we we, if you've been around enough or long enough you know when people are lying or making stuff up but you Mm. also you also know that it's messy
0: yeah okay
1: well that's a little more reassuring
0: um because yeah it's often messy when i'm uh thinking or trying to come up with ideas um yeah i feel like a lot of what students lack is like the storytelling aspect as you said there where it's like um you know you tell the story of why this is the solution what are you know how do you improve your storytelling of you know you've got the idea sorted how do you improve your storytelling of how that why that is this why that is the solution and it's not you know something else
1: yeah and and so that's why it helps to have a really strong theme coming through with what you're doing right and so to make this actually make sense, we could kick around an example that you've got, or I could find one to talk about. Do you want to do that?
0: Yeah, if, if you've got one to hand. Yeah, oh, you're going to outsource. You're going to outsource the responsibility. Yeah, of course, of course. You're, right. you're the guest at, on this on this podcast. You're the guest. You got to, you know, make it about you, not about me. Nobody's nobody's here to hear from me. They're here to hear from you. Unfortunately. Just as well I have something I made earlier. Uh, so the art attack. Spe- oh, you want to know what art attack is? Do you know what art
1: attack is? what no what
0: uh art attack was a, a tv show in the uk where the guy would be like okay so you do this 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 and here's what i made earlier and he would just bring out the thing that took you like an hour to do in like the next second right right right
1: it's exactly anyway. like that this is exactly yeah. like yes so, so i can, I can, I can share <laughs> yeah. an example that came that happened in a, a live training session the other day uh don't judge any of this because the point is to think freely without judging ourselves along the way but the There was someone in the group who works with an organization called Lona, L-O-N-A, in San Francisco. Lona raises money for women-owned businesses. And for this hypothetical brief, we were like, okay, so you raise money, you need donations. Who's the audience? And the person I was talking with said, well, we're thinking about getting male feminists to give us money. Now, to me, that's too narrow, but I get why, mm-hmm. they're, I get why they're playing yeah. this, right? So I was like, okay, let's play with that. So the question is, how do you get male feminists to do- donate money to women-owned businesses? And the way that we talked about the problem, we kicked it around. I had people write, you know, 10 problems down, and then we pulled them apart, talked about them. And the way that I'm stating the problem based on this session, which is hypothetical, I'm not recommending this, I'm not saying it's good, I just like playing, is that there are a lot of male feminists who are feminists in name only, and mm. essentially they're saying I've got the t-shirt that says the future is female, you know, because when you dig into some of this behavior, some of it has something to do with social desirability. And I think it's always worth, I won't lose you on this. Sorry if this is too nerdy, but like, no, I no, don't worry. I'm, I'm all in. Yeah. Like I think it's worth keeping evolutionary psychology. Some of the key principles of evolutionary psychology in mind all the time, even though, yeah. you know, it's like, you don't want to use it in every brief, but like, the key things that I understand about evolutionary psychology, just to, just three key points is like often what we do, we do to get access to mating opportunities, resources, yep. and status, right? Yeah. So I was like, That's, that seems fun. Let's play with that. So, you know, a lot of these guys are just wearing the T-shirt that says I'm a feminist, but they're not actually putting their money where their mouths are. Yeah. Uh, I
0: think it's, um, it's referred to as a term called woke fishing, uh, similar to catfishing, where you pretend to be um, a different person to attract yep. partners the opposite um, sex, you uh, pretend to be woke to attract other woke people.
1: There you go, there you go. I find yeah. the I find the word woke and the discussion around it deeply problematic because it's be, it's been used a lot by very conservative, non-empathetic people to shame other people for caring about other people. So I'm not like, a, I don't play with that language too much, but I, I get what you're saying there. Now, the, the insight there, if we're just going to be true, is like, it's sexy to be a feminist until it costs me. So that's connected mm. connected to the problem, it feels true. I know this is gonna offend a bunch of people. <laughs> like, why are you using the word sexy? Why are you using the word male? Well, you know, mm. why, why does it have to cost me? I'm like, well, I could argue this and show research about it, even though we made this up on the spot. Now, when I, so in my mind, there's this thing called the four points that I'm playing with. At the top, you've got problem. On the left, you've got insight, because it's four points. And on the right, you've got advantage. So the advantage is what makes this organization or giving money to this organization unique and motivating in people's minds. We haven't nailed it here, but the sentence is that donating money to women leads to exponential benefits, not costs. There is research out there, I don't know if it's been debunked, but it does suggest that in some parts of the world, and I don't know if this is everywhere, that if you give money to men, some men drink the money. Like I remember Oprah talking about this decades ago when she started to advocate for giving money to to women in certain parts of the world, whereas women are uh, and I know this gets into gender stereotypes, right? So this only stands true if we can find research to support it. That's that's it. Uh, but essentially, that many women are more community minded, not all, uh, and that giving money to women can help more people than just potentially to a man. That's like some of the research that's out there. Don't know if it's been debunked. Strategies show that feminism is sexier when you invest in it, not just buy it. Okay. So we've got four sentences coming together that I explained in about fifty sentences. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. but the thing is to the question that sets up a presentation and it sets up a story and what I would then do is shrink some of this language into two or three words and I'd use those words as, as the hooks for slides for the hooks of my story uh, and also I want to shout out the fact that there are other people uh, Ilmar Charani and Val P- Puchalowski who are involved with some of this language as well but you know, your question is like how do you tell the story in an interesting way right yeah yeah, so it helps to have an interesting strategy, <laughs> and then and and then it just flows, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, but I can I can see how yeah by working it through in that way the story almost builds itself, or it, it's pretty it obvious, it's pretty evident what the story is going to be, and it's all just about um, tweaking it and as you said, um, cutting down the language. That's quite
1: a big thing for you. Um, this sh- is it short sharp language or short sharp words you talk about? Yeah, I use that a lot. Yeah yeah Uh, yeah but essentially the one of the concepts from linguistics i know i'm using big words it's because you're in a certain part of the world that that is like intellectually oriented but there's um (laughs) yeah there's this concept of monogamous words so monogamy faithfulness as in words that don't cheat Uh, words that don't cheat words that have fewer alternative meanings fewer synonyms or words that we tend to remember so a word like a word like pineapple You and I kinda know what a pineapple is. Not a lot of other ways to think about a pineapple. Not a lot of ambiguity about a pineapple. Yeah. A word like empowerment, ironically, for what we were just talking about, or concept, Mm -hmm. or execution, or even idea. It's like what do you what do you mean by that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I really I
0: I really, really like that sort of framing of it where yeah, using words that were almost you you can't be misread or misunderstood.
1: There's always a chance of that, though, because... Okay, less likely yeah. to. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. You're trying to reduce your uh, chances of that, and then they go more yeah. immediately into the brain. And so do you
0: advocate for this for um, copy as well, or is this just um, yeah, is this a, just a strategy thing?
1: For everything, for life.
0: Yeah. For <laughs> art, for life, for, art, Not for, broad. Life. for strategy, <laughs> yeah. for
1: copy, for everything, yeah.
0: Okay, yeah, I like it. Um. So to finish up here, what do you what do you have going on at the moment? What are you um involved in?
1: Uh yeah, I mean I've just recently published a book. The first round of it sold out. It's called Strategy Is Your Words. So that was like a big life goal to, I mean to publish a book. I'm in New York as an Aussie, but to publish a book in a foreign country to sell it directly yourself, not through Amazon, not through anyone else, and for it to sell out. Um. Yeah, I'm I'm pinching myself. I'm like, yeah, you know, that's, that must that's be amazing. Crazy. You know. It does, it does feel good. Uh, and then just really thinking about how to step all of this up, make it a little bit more professional and work out how to try to help help more people but also helping people while having a sustainable business that can support multiple people financially as well. That's really where my head's at right now. Yeah, nice. All but scaling. Yeah, but not in yeah. like a, a rushed american way where you have to scale or you're a fail- <laughs> failure you know, yeah there's there's a sense of depth and artistry with what i want to be doing so I, I i don't lose sight on that i keep i keep probably two hands on that all at all times
0: so for uh, anyone interested in the book when um, when can we expect more coming
1: out i'll have more in a matter of weeks so late april i'll have a whole bunch shipped over quickly it's going to cost a lot of money to get them shipped here and then i'm you know if I was bold I'm going to try to get another book out this year if I'm really bold it's two books but they'll be shorter this first one's like 80,000 words 400 pages so I need a, I don't want to do okay. yeah. that again immediately right. it's going to like wear people out so I'll do you know maybe a 100 page book and a 200 page book and make them available probably on Amazon and and in different places uh, and they'll all be available at least through my website sweathead.com and uh, is that the best place for people to check, out, check you out? That is correct, Kieran. com or at Mark Pollard on Twitter and Instagram. LinkedIn, relatively active. I kind of treat the internet as a as a blank canvas. <laughs> I just write and express. Uh, but I'm in various places, yeah.
0: Great. Well, I'm sure people will find you um, and read everything you do because, um, yeah, you you produce some really great stuff. And, um, yeah, thanks for coming on uh, today and chatting with me. I really enjoy this. Thank you. You made me sound thanks. more intellectual than normal. So...
1: I hope, that was, I hope that
0: was okay <laughs> is, that, is that a reflection of how intellectual i sound a certain accents trigger me and i'm like oh i better sound smart <laughs> i like got a, a scottish accent that's i mean there's a lot of stereotypes about the scots but i don't think intellectuals
1: a common one yes but unfortunately i've read that at one point edinburgh was the heart of european intellect a few hundred years hey, ago right we
0: made the tv the phone call the phone call the phone and the phone call i guess and uh, penicillin, so yeah, I'll do. There it's a go. decent hole for the for the world. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Cheers. All right, Karen, thank you.